Hi, folks. Next up on This Week in Law, we've got antitrust in the form of Apple, AT&T, and T-Mobile. Is the Google Book search settlement finally dead? We don't know. We're going to find out, though. Uh, Evan Brown is here, as is from GigaLaw, Doug Eisenberg, and Alessandro Dagliano from Truvoli. We're going to talk about whether piracy is dead. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. It's been a very busy week in technology law. Join us next on Twill. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 104, recorded March 25, 2011. Getting cozy with it. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Carbonite Pro, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at CarbonitePro.com. And by Squarespace. Squarespace.com is the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com. Hey there, you've made it back for This Week in Law, episode 104. I'm Denise Howell. And we're here this week with an amazing array of stuff that has happened in the world of technology law and an amazing panel of folks to try and unpack it all for us. Uh, with us, we've got the Ariana Huffington of the world of legal technology, uh, namely Doug Eisenberg of GigaLaw. Hello, Doug. <laughs> Hi, Denise. Now that's a uh, first. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, I think. Yes, we're just wondering when uh, you're going to be acquired by AOL, so be sure and uh, clue us in when that begins to happen. Well, I've never refused their call. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> um, Doug, of course, runs the wonderful news aggregation uh, site called gigalaw.com, but it reminds me of Huffington Post because it has wonderful original commentary as well and uh, just great content altogether. and uh, Doug's sort of an icon in our world of tech law news, so great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Also joining us, the founder and CEO of a company we recently featured as a resource of the week on Twill. It is called Truvoli, and he is Alessandro Daliano. Hello, Alessandro. Hi. Thank you for being here. Oh. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm really interested in your company and what you're doing. Uh, in case you missed our episode where we uh, featured Truvoli, it is an online crowdsourced dispute resolution service. And I guess if people were using your service or more like it, Alessandro, we would have not much more to talk about here on Twill. So we're, we're happy you exist, but at the same time, uh, I guess you're cannibalizing lots of people's businesses and uh, we can talk about that uh, in a little while. But uh, first, I'd also like to welcome back to the show, Evan Brown of internetcases.com. Hello, Evan. Hey, how's it going, Denise? Happy Friday to you. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. I know, me too. Great to have you back Thanks. and uh, great to have our uh, representative of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Doug, aren't you somewhere in those environs too? Um, well, I suppose everything's relative, but no, I'm in Atlanta. 
You're in Atlanta. No, that's not relative at all. <laughs> I was just so, kidding. you know, it's, it's, they're, they're both flyover states. So you, you folks in California and New York, what's it matter, you know? Mm -hmm. We're, only, we're right. only one time zone apart, right? I think so. <laughs> I'm just so used to our having guests on the show and, and one of them being just down the block from Evan over in Chicago right. in one way or another. We seem to have a lot of Chicago guests on the show, but no, I just... Well, yes. consider, considering the Atlanta traffic, I may uh, be able to make it to Chicago more quickly sometimes than I can make it across down here. <laughs> right. Well, we've got the U.S. well covered then because Alessandro is in New York. So, yep. got quite a few quadrants represented. And uh, going on this week, it's just it's hard to know where to start. A lot of antitrust related stuff. So why don't we start with one of those? There's There are a lot of uh, antitrust concerns about Apple um, internationally these days. Uh, one of them is a case that's been pending in California for quite some time. Um, I, th I believe, you know, the mid 2000s, uh, even earlier than that, Real Networks was complaining about the fact that uh, they would like for iTunes store music to be able to play on their products um, and Apple kept updating the software such that that could not happen, ironically enough, uh, with something that they called Fair Play. Um, so this case, this antitrust case, uh, has been going on for quite some time. It's a class action antitrust case against Apple by private consumers, not by the government. Um, and the judge in that case has decided that Steve Jobs has unique, non-repetitive, first-hand knowledge about Apple's software updates in, Octo in October 2004 that rendered the real network's digital music files once again inoperable with iPods. And he thinks that despite Steve Jobs' health problems or anything else, he should submit to a deposition for two hours in this case, which just kind of blows me away as someone who has litigated before. It's a pretty rare and unusual thing to get someone uh, of Steve Jobs' position and stature and health uh, to be in that situation. So I'm wondering, you know, alternately, it could wind up being something that's very perfunctory and brief and in and out, or on the other end of the spectrum, it could be like one of those scenes from the movie The Social Network where, you know, every, all kinds of fireworks are going off in the deposition. Uh, Evan, what do you think is going to happen here? Well, I imagine that, that, that they'll try to be reasonable and use that two hours uh, efficiently. And to do that, the, the lawyers who plan on taking jobs as deposition will be very well prepared. There may even be some communications beforehand about, uh, you know, real specifics about what the, the questions are going to be like. Uh, in a deposition room, two hours flies by like that. And so if there's, if there's going to be anything accomplished uh, of substance, the lawyers wanting to take his deposition will want to make sure that they don't have to get into any silliness or shenanigans, you know, when all of this is, is actually uh, happening. But you make a great point, uh, Denise, when you say this is really mind boggling that the judge is even permitting this deposition to occur in the first place, because the battle over whether you can get the CEOs or other, you know, C-suite executives depositions in, in litigation is a battle that you hear about and, and is fought in, in 
you know, in companies of all sizes, even, you know, small, closely held family operations, you know, the CEO still, uh, a lot of this, I think, is in the mind of the CEO, you know, really tries to be distant above the fray in the types of issues that usually are, are being litigated. So there's you know, it's very frequent that there is a battle over whether or not, you know, the, the party seeking discovery will get the deposition of the, you know, the, the big guy or the old guy in the corner office or however you want to characterize it. So I suppose that we could try to read the tea leaves and, and um, you know, we, we've got to be careful in doing this too far, but we've got, we could, you know, imagine that the judge sees some real importance in the, the actual claims being brought here, uh, you know, bringing Steve Jobs in for this uh, for, for this deposition like this so it's interesting yeah I think it's fascinating it is kind of just a sideshow to the overall question of antitrust allegations against Apple which seem to be coming on all fronts these days and are sort of a logical consequence of the way Apple does business they like to keep tight control over things so that things work well but uh, some of the assertions against Apple lately have been that their controls have nothing to do with whether something works well, but have lots more to do with Apple making money, um, such as their uh, arrangements with people selling subscription services through the App Store. Doug, do you think any of these antitrust, con antitrust concerns against Apple are going to stick at some point? Well, I, I don't know uh, as much about the substantive matters of the antitrust law as I do some of the procedural maneuvering here that uh, Evan was referring to. And it certainly is, uh, I, I agree, a bit surprising um, that this apparently is going to go forward, although until the deposition actually occurs, uh, who knows. But um, the comments about Steve Jobs' health are uh, interesting, but apparently, you know, he's, he's health, healthy enough to, you know, have dinner uh, recently with the President of the United States. Obviously, a difficult invitation to turn down, um, but uh, there were photos released of uh, Steve Jobs at, at uh, a technology dinner with other CEOs and uh, President Obama. He was healthy enough, obviously, very recently to uh, prepare for and come on stage uh, to introduce to the world the uh, iPad 2, um, which uh, uh, he was successful at uh, introducing, um, given the 15 million or so, however many uh, devices have been sold um, of, of the iPads uh, and the million plus of the iPad 2. So uh, his health, um, you know, I'm, it seems to be a little bit of uh, a side issue here. Uh, I, I'm not questioning uh, his health or le the legitimacy of, of these issues, but I, I don't I've not heard any reason why it would prohibit him from being deposed for two hours. Um, what's I think more interesting is uh, what will Steve Jobs actually be like under deposition. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, deposition, I believe, of uh, Bill Gates uh, from a number of years ago during uh, some Microsoft uh, antitrust uh, litigation. And it, it's sort of uh, hard to forget, but it, it wasn't that many years ago. And he was not apparently a, a very uh, successful um, witness. Um, and, you know, how Steve Jobs will perform. We know he does great when he's uh, on stage, uh, but how will he do at the conference room table remains to be seen. Well, I'm sure he's got fine counsel and, and good help, but he's also got an incredibly strong personality, and I guess this is one of those uh, costs that um, 
you must pay if you're going to opt to help launch your company's latest and greatest new product. You know, if you can go on and razzle dazzle with the iPad too, then as you say, Doug, a deposition for a couple of hours shouldn't shouldn't be that taxing. Um, although I'd be surprised if the lawyers just just sort of happily accept this. You know, I could see them trying to put a bunch of conditions on it and try and make it as smooth and comfortable for Mr. Jobs as possible, which I hope that, you know, they and actually I, do. And I, it, and I, I don't mean to uh, belittle the, the deposition process. It's uh, not a uh, chair that I would want to be in. Um, and it's quite different, obviously, than uh, performing according to a script uh, because he doesn't know all the questions that uh, will be asked. And uh, the short answer is that apparently he's accustomed to giving, uh, if, if you believe some of the technology blogs, uh, when uh, he's asked questions by consumers via email about what's going on with some of the products, the antenna gate issue on the iPhone 4, for example, from last summer. Uh, and, and he sort of uh, uh, dashes off these uh, quick couple of word responses. Um, that won't probably work in the deposition. So it, it will be a different territory for him. I know, Evan, can't you just see him walking in and, and not taking a seat, but instead just sort of pacing the room with a clicker in his hand and a screen at one end of the conference room and trying to give his keynote presentation of all the bullet points he wants to make that day? Yeah, that's, that, that's great. It might take some, uh, some lawyering to get him to, to settle down a little bit. But, you know, you, that, that <laughs> reminds me, maybe, the, maybe he won't even actually be in the same room as those deposing him. It's not uncommon to take depositions by telephone or, you know, video conference or something like that. So if you're scheduling sure. on his behalf, maybe he ought to, you know, be present in some auditorium somewhere, more on his home turf. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> At one infinite at one infinite loop somewhere. Um, Alessandro, uh, I, I don't know, um, I'm guessing you are from Europe originally, is that correct? No, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, there we go. So yeah, you born just have a very Italian name. Yes, right. well, you know, so that happens. My, my attempt to get sort of an EU perspective from you on, uh, on Apple antitrust issues is probably gonna fall flat, but, but what do you think about uh, Apple getting barraged on so many sides uh, by these questions, whether it relates to the music store or their software or their hardware or their app store. Um, it seems like there are some very long, hard looks going on to their practices. You know, that's, that's par for the course. Um, litigation is very good for business because while things are being litigated, you can develop market share. You can become, you can penetrate that market um, very well. And to be perfectly honest with you, in Europe and probably even in the United States to a large extent, using litigation, changing standards, um, well, lobbying in general is actually part of doing business. You know, Steve Jobs and Apple Computer are going to be able to penetrate that market, whether it be the iTunes, the iPad, um, develop market share, and then maybe 15 years, 20 years down the road. If it was Europe, it would even be 50 years down the road. When uh, the litigation was resolved, they'd have the market share, they get slapped on the wrist, they will have made lots of money for their shareholders, and whoever is litigating against them, well, they don't have anything. They don't have a business anymore. Right. 
Evan, do you think Apple's uh, strategy here, or I don't know if it's so much a strategy as uh, a mode of doing business, just sort of the way things are with Apple, um, do you think that they are more of a sort of ask permission later kind of approach on these antitrust issues? Or do you feel that, or do you think that they feel they are on solid legal footing? It could be a little bit of both, and and it's probably that cavalier attitude that we like so much, or that's one of the things that makes us like Apple so much. We may even love to hate it to, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know, this particular lawsuit that we're talking about here, and I think you said this in um, introducing the issue, goes all the way back to 2004, you know, stuff that Apple was doing in uh, allegedly not playing fairly with uh, real networks and, uh, you know, the, with, with the DRM stuff going on there. So it's easy for us to look back uh, now, seven years later almost, gosh, it's hard to believe, to 2004 and th- think, well, this was all just some kind of strategy and they, they, there was this evil plan to, to take over the, the, um, the market, um, you know, antitrust issues uh, you know, notwithstanding or, you know, be damned. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's, you know, it's probably, um, you know, just a a basic, uh, middle of the, well, I won't say middle of the road, but a very basic, um, aggressive business stance with a principled analysis of what's going on, realizing that a lot of the questions are going to be untried, particularly when it comes to the, the, the antitrust laws and how they would apply to the distribution of, of digital media. It's still <clears throat> really uh, unclear to us how exactly the whole framework should look when it, when it comes to the distribution of, of uh, digital goods. I'll, I'll, I'll characterize it that way. In 2011, it's difficult to do that. In 2004, it was even more uh, forward-looking and, and you know, who knows what's, what's going to happen here. So they have the resources, they had the, the vision, they had the products to support it. By 2004, the iPod was already three years old. So, you know, it just makes sense that they would, they would act in this way and, and there may not be too much to be gained by um, kind of doing psychoanalysis on them seven years later. Did you see Professor Goldman got some ink in uh, the Wall Street Journal on these points, uh, specifically with respect to the App Store issue and subscription services, Apple's plan to, uh, or, or dictate, I guess it is really, that um, companies cannot link out or offer subscriptions other than through the application itself. And when they do so, they, they must pay 30% of what they make from that to Apple. Um, Apple's got, I think, a couple of things going for it on that issue and on the other issues too. And that is that they can always, uh, in order to, to make antitrust allegations stick, you have to be so heavily dominant in the market um, that you really are squashing other competition. And I think that that's hard to say about Apple on, on a lot of these fronts. On the music front, who knows? I mean, I've read that they have more of a share of the overall music market than someone like Walmart in the U.S. And we're not just talking about online music sales here. And on the online front, 70% or more. Um, so so they're, they're certainly a dominant player. But when you're talking about selling applications or subscriptions, 
you know, I think Apple's in a good spot to say, look, nobody's making you be on our platform. There are lots of other platforms out there where you can do exactly what you'd like. But if you want to play over here in our sandbox, this is what you're going to have to pay us to do it. Um, Doug, do you think that, uh, that I'm just sort of being naive about this, that, you know, Apple's crushing the tablet and app market so that um, it's not really a fair choice to tell people to go elsewhere? Well, I, I would never call you naive, Denise. Um, <laughs> you'd be happy to know. But I, I think you know, the analogies back to what happened in the browser wars are mm -hmm. really fascinating because that was a time um, when you know, there was really one browser uh, or at least you know, one um, uh, significant browser, and that was the Net Netscape Navigator browser. Um, and then along comes uh, a company called Microsoft and creates this uh, new internet browser and decides to bundle it into the Windows operating system and uh, suddenly uh, becomes the dominant player. And today, uh, wh where are we after all of that litigation? Um, I've got three or four you know, browsers installed on uh, any PC I'm using at any time and kind of uh, play around with different ones. I think we've seen new versions introduced uh, just uh, in, in recent days uh, from three of the top players, um, Google, Microsoft, and, and Mozilla Firefox. Uh, and there are others. Uh, the Opera browser gets uh, incredible reviews. So a great deal of competition, um, and you're right. Uh, I've heard the same figures about uh, music sales and how much of the market uh, Apple has, but obviously that, that was not um, always the case, and there are alternative, believe it or not, there are uh, alternative uh, digital music players other than those that run the uh, um, uh, iPod or iPhone, uh, uh, the iOS uh, operating system. Um, I, I'm a little uh, pressed to think of anybody who actually owns one. And I think Microsoft has announced they're, they're, they're discontinuing their Zune hardware. Um, so they're uh, pretty much uh, giving up that battle, at least on the hardware front. Uh, but, but there are plenty of choices uh, to, to be had. And, and now that I think about it, I think I, I do know of some folks who uh, listen to music in different ways and, and they're called uh, mom and dad. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it, so, so it's kind of interesting. I, I'm trying to uh, draw an analogy um, that uh, today we have a significant number of browsers out there. They're all, uh, or, or, you know, a lot of them are, are great products. Um, a lot of us alternate among using them. Um, and so the competition that has been created, uh, I, I think is good. Um, what will happen in the digital music arena or um, smartphone app arena? Um, perhaps uh, remains to be seen what uh, actually goes on with uh, Apple and its app store or some of the other uh, app stores that I know uh, uh, are, are struggling to make their presence known as well. Well, and I think, you know, it, it eats into Apple's business, but on these uh, antitrust issues, Apple must be applauding wildly for services like Pandora and all the other online streaming music alternatives that are available today that are really just a completely different business model than iTunes or than iTunes has traditionally been. Of course, they're going to have to respond to this. Um, but, you know, I think Apple's in a pretty good scrappy place to be able to fight off all this uh, antitrust scrutiny. I don't know if I can say that about AT&T, however. Uh, we have, of course, another huge antitrust-related story this week. AT&T's decision to buy T-Mobile for $39 billion. 
Uh, and of course, the Department of Justice is examining that even as we speak to see if they're going to let it go forward. Uh, Evan, any thoughts about this one? Um, just thinking about not switching from T-Mobile, thinking I might be able to use an iPhone on the network. That, that was my big, uh, uh, my, my initial reaction. No, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is, uh, uh, I'm not an antitrust lawyer. And so I only think of these things really as an outsider, just like, you know, in the, in, to the same extent, really, if I was not uh, a lawyer at all. So uh, knowing what I know about antitrust law and looking at the you know, the threshold that must be met for there to be some violation of the antitrust laws. Um, it doesn't frighten me too much that, that this is going on because of, you know, the, the viability and, you know, the market share that, that companies like, like Verizon and, and Sprint have. You know, they are still very, you know, they, I don't know how the market actually breaks out, but just you know, watching television and seeing ads, I know that their market share must be really significant. So it doesn't seem to me that we're at a point where uh, there should be any big concerns between T-Mobile and AT, with AT&T and T-Mobile coming together. And, and especially, um, you know, if they can do it justifiably for, for business reasons, like, you know, coverage and, um, and um, you know, the quality of the network, making an argument in favor of the of the public interest which you know no doubt they would be doing uh when taken to task by the department of justice on uh, on this um uh, on this merger here so um it it doesn't make me all that afraid you know just having heard it um i think there's plenty of good to be, to be had from it but um you know my my perspective is a little bit limited on that and so i'm just guessing at a lot of things on this well excuse me could i interject something there um, how do you feel about the fact that uh, T-Mobile and AT&T are the only GSM operators, uh, whereas Verizon and Sprint, Sprint being much smaller than any of the previous three, uh, use a different system called CMDA? Um, if CDMA. CDMA, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, if AT&T and T-Mobile merge... That means that anybody who visits the United States from abroad will be paying roaming charges to only AT&T. That gives them quite a lot of extra money, extra business that uh, Verizon cannot get and neither can uh, Sprint. Yep, yeah. that's a really interesting point. Um, over in the chat, Reverb, Reverb Mike, who has a great chat handle, um, has been wondering uh, if we've got another Ma Bell breakup in our future. I, I'm wondering if there are, you know, this happened so long ago now, there are people probably in our audience who don't even remember that a long time ago they did have to break up the telephone company because it got too big. And uh, with AT&T and singular and now t-mobile we certainly seem to be headed that direction again uh doug what do you think about reverb mike's question well uh, i would say as uh, evan did i'm also uh not an antitrust attorney although i am an mm -hmm. attorney uh but I, I tend to look at these things uh probably more from a uh consumer's perspective uh as as well and you know mm -hmm. i think that uh, it certainly is a bit concerning uh the consolidation of these players and fewer choices of 
um, cell phone service providers, you know, an initial concern is, well, what will that do to my monthly uh, cell phone bill? Um, and obviously, we don't yet know. Um, with respect to the issue of the, the difference in, in networks between the CDMA and the GSM and what's available in the United States and what's available in Europe, um, Alessandra's question is an interesting one. Um, although, you know, I used to face a, a, a similar uh, conundrum um, when I would go to Europe from the United States um, with my Verizon phone um, and uh, essentially have to turn it off uh, and, until I returned home. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating question um, and I, you know, will certainly look forward to seeing how it plays out, but uh, I think it's much too early to, to say ultimately what this will do for the market. Uh, that, you know, what it will do for the network, what it will do for the variety of products, what it will do for the uh, cell phone bills that uh, we all pay as consumers. Right. And uh, it's Silverback in IRC this time who I think has figured out the whole 2012 Mayan prophecy, end of the world prophecy, and that is that uh, AT&T and Apple merge and then we have Skynet. Huh. So, <laughs> end of story. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I, what it does seem to come down to, and again, none of us on, on the show today are antitrust lawyers, and uh, they are a very specialized niche of folks who have very specialized economic backgrounds and insights and uh, a strong policy slant. But uh, if you believe Roger Chang in the Wall Street Journal and uh, the folks at the Justice Department, uh, the issue that this may well turn on is the extent to which there is competition in the local markets for your cellular wireless provider options. Uh, Alessandro, uh, since all of this scrutiny seems to turn on how much competition there is for your wireless service dollar in the local markets. Are you seeing in New York a whole lot of competition, a whole lot of options out there for you if you were to go and want to um, find a wireless carrier who was not T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, or AT&T? Mm, I think, well, there's Metro, PCS, there's Boost. Um, those are the two major ones. I think there may be some other ones, but there is a market for I think it's called MVNO, basically companies that buy bandwidth from the major operators. Um, and a number of them have sprouted up as small companies, like Cricket, for example, in the West Coast, I think is pretty big. Um, mm -hmm. But Boost and uh, Metro PCS, both of them use uh, the old Nextel uh, system that Sprint bought. Mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, has been upgraded. So you're not really talking about real competition. You're talking about segments of the well, competitive segments, niche markets that exist within uh, the larger market. The, um, the fact that you have a merger with AT&T and T-Mobile is going to create a company that I think has like 142 million subscribers as opposed to like 136 million from Verizon. And the next competitor, which would be uh, Sprint, I think has like 40 million. So you basically have two very big concentrations 
uh, of technology with two different technologies. So how do you develop more competition? How do you develop better products and services? Because we all know that the price of the, of the, of the cell phone service is not going down. Never has gone down. Right. I think those are the, that's the major issue. Okay, well, uh, if nobody has any further thoughts on AT&T and T-Mobile, uh, Doug, anything more you want to add to this? Um, no, no further thoughts other than, you know, what's I think fascinating to see is uh, the changes that are going on in the cell phone marketplace as well. When uh, Alessandra said nobody's uh, seeing their bills go down, um, it, I, I, the voice portion of uh, my bill, and I think a lot of uh, people's bills are, are going down, it's the data portion that's going up. So how we use the networks is, is certainly changing and to be able to use them uh, for the heavy demands that we're putting on them certainly requires an investment in, in new technology. So um, for what that's worth, that's my parting thought on, on that topic. Evan, what do you think about consolidation potentially between the folks who provide our wired internet access and our wireless internet access following up on that point? If the voice piece is falling by the wayside, um, doesn't it make sense that someone like Time Warner become a wireless carrier? I think so. And um, aren't they already a wireless carrier? Well, I can get Comcast wireless service for my laptop here in Atlanta. Right. Well, they, then, have, uh, they have the wireless that they use from Clearwire, which is well, I was trying to work with Sprint at one point. And then, At least that's uh, offered here in the New York market. Right. And I, I guess Sprint's, right. uh, what, was, what was that called, Fios? Has that been phased out? You know, because there was some market overlap there. What were you going to say, Denise? You were going to say something? Verizon is Fios. Fios mm -hmm. is Verizon. Fios. Right. I don't know. Um, I'm just, I'm, uh, we, we had the hypothesis that Apple and, um, for, and AT&T were going to merge. Maybe, you know, that Skynet would be up against... Uh, the more traditional landline carriers um, deciding that voice is irrelevant and offering some kind of service where, you know, you could have uh, communication through internet telephony like we're using now mm -hmm. as your primary mode. Um, so who knows? All kinds of uh, options out there. Um, but b before, uh, what I want to get to in a moment is... Um, Alessandro's very interesting option for dispute resolution, which circumvents the courts and leverages the power of the crowd. But uh, before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsor, Carbonite Pro. Of course, a computer dis uh, disaster is devastating in any context, but imagine you are, as three of us are on the show today, a lawyer, and your client files and billing records are what's at stake if something goes wrong with your computer. More and more law offices are using Carbonite Pro online backup. I know I use it for my own practice. Uh, with Carbonite Pro, your files are backed up automatically, so it really gets done continuously. They're stored securely and safely off-site. What I mean by continuously is as soon as there is an update, your system recognizes that and the changed file is backed up to the cloud so that you constantly are keeping track of the new additions to your data. 
Plus, each employee can access their backed up files from any computer or on their smartphone with a free app. Prices start at just $10 a month, so start your free one-month trial at CarbonitePro.com. You won't regret it. It's a wonderful service. For you guys um, who haven't tried it yet, please do check out CarbonitePro.com. So let's check out something that's very innovative in the legal arena and uh, talk for a moment with Alessandro about online crowdsourced dispute resolution. Um, Alessandro has founded a site called Truvily that does just that. And what you can do, it's free. Uh, if you have a dispute, and so often I have people come to me where they do have a dispute with someone and it's a legitimate dispute. It's the kind of thing where otherwise you would have to go to court to work it out. Uh, but it maybe just doesn't involve the dollars to justify that. Um, I've been uh, reading about something called coast costs an economic concept uh, from a famous economist whose last name was Coase, C-O-A-S-E, in uh, Cory Doctorow's book, For the Win. Everything I learned about economics, I learned from Cory Doctorow, in other words. And uh, <laughs> a coast cost is, is when sort of the pain point of doing something is so strong that you do something else instead. So the example he uses is, um, you know, it's good fun to go to the movies with all of your friends, but in olden times before we were all connected up wirelessly with Foursquare and cell phones and texts, etc. if you had to round up all your friends by conventionally calling them on the telephone and trying to coordinate a movie date, the cost of doing that was so high to you that you might just stay home and watch whatever was on TV instead. It had a high Was that before cost. or after voicemail? <laughs> well, he did posit that you could leave a message for the person you were trying to reach, oh. but, you know, I'm visiting someone's voicemail. mom taking a note. Yeah, jeez. Yes. Um, so the coast costs of litigation are very, very high and uh, don't really see any sign of coming down through technology. But Alessandro has this technological alternative to the legal process as a whole. And of course, there are all kinds of um, mediation and alternative dispute resolutions out there that don't happen online, but yours does happen online. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what kind of traction you're getting with this solution to um, letting the crowd decide people's legal disputes? All right. Well, um, first of all, I'd have to say that it's not really crowdsourced because we do mm -hmm. limit it to a panel of five jurors or neutrals. Mm -hmm. So, but don't you don't you draw limited. those? You draw those people, though, from the broad online audience. You take volunteers from people who just come along to your site, correct? Well, for the moment, we've limited it to a jury pool of 20 people who are registered users. And from mm -hmm. those 20 people, the ones who accept to participate uh, are then interviewed, like you would in any courtroom, by the, by the litigants. And mm -hmm. uh, they have to agree on five. So mm -hmm. it, it does keep it at a manageable, uh, in a manageable, uh, a manageable size of people. But there's manageable no requirement group. that these people have a legal background or be lawyers or judges, correct? No, the people who are in the the people who go and do jury duty are 
people who are like you and well, sorry, not like you and me, but the, <laughs> you know, your average Joe. You know, although there are lawyers who do, do who do jury duty, which is true. But, uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah, so everybody. You know, here in New York, uh, actually, I had the first the first opportunity to go and sit in uh, for a couple of days while waiting to be chosen. Uh, to be a juror on a during jury duty here in New York, and I was very surprised to see that there were people from all walks of life. You know, people who were immigrants, people who spoke English, they didn't speak English. You know, it's part of their civic duty. But that's here in the U.S. The minute you go outside of the U.S., most people don't have this opportunity, and they well, aside from what they see on TV, but. People who live outside of the U.S. have written to me and say, you know, we really want to do this because we don't get to do this where we're from. <laughs> so there is right. an aspect for them that's, uh, that's interesting. So uh, are you getting people signing up and resolving their disputes with the site? Well, the, we haven't been able to do any dispute resolution to date on purpose because we needed to develop a jury pool that was sufficiently large. Um, we added a bit of complexity to this in the sense that we limited it to, well, the jury pool selection is done with users from any country aside from the country that the two litigants are from. So if you have an American person and a French person, the 20 members of the jury pool will not be from the US or from France. Um, this has required us to wait a bit before we actually launch the service until we have enough countries or users from countries that are represented that goes at least until 20. At the present moment, that's what we have. So now we're ready to move forward. Well, that's great. You'll have to keep us posted and, and let us know when your first uh, dispute has been successfully resolved because I think it's a really interesting model. I can think of a lot of contexts where um, people would want to avoid the court system and uh, go ahead and let a jury of their international peers uh, take over and have the final say. Evan, what do you think about this? Uh, I've said this before, um, you know, this, the services like this, um, I think, can play a valuable role in the legal industry. Um, you know, there are plenty of, of informational sites about the law. There are plenty of sites that actually let you do a little bit uh, DIY stuff with the law, you know, with um, LegalZoom and Trademarkia and, you know, other sites, you know, within the general uh, genre of kind of self-serve um, uh, legal assistance. And those are similar to what I see from from Truvoli in as much as um, they and this is a you know the buzzword that that uh, we toss around a lot and that that we see uh, to describe this and others have described this as disintermediation, kind of taking out the uh, middleman, middle person, if you will, you know the lawyers, the taking out the the courts as well and making the the process a bit more um, direct between. Uh, those who are in need of the ultimate outcome and the means for for providing that that outcome. So um, there's there, there's an important place in the uh, legal industry for services like this. Um, I don't think they'll that they will become a panacea, 
for, for a number of reasons, the most important of which is uh, related to the, the level of sophistication of the actual issues that need to be adjudicated. And usually the more sophisticated a matter is, the more that's actually at stake. And I think the normal human impulse would be that you don't want to rely on something as capricious as uh, a jury pool uh, selected from the world at large uh, that um, you know, may or may not reflect kind of a broader perspective uh, on, on the world. So um, I look at this, um, and, and I certainly don't mean to be diminutive of, of Truvoli, uh, because, you know, like I've said for the third time now, I think it can serve a, an important part of the, uh, mm -hmm. the legal industry. But I look at it almost in the same way as people probably looked at taking their disputes in front of Judge Wapner, you know, in the people's court. Right. Almost mm -hmm. as if you're just doing it for sport and you really don't care about the outcome and the outcome is not going to be critical to, you know, your future or your familial relationships or whether you're going to be reimbursed for that serious injury that you got because of someone's negligence or whether you're going to be able to, to license, you know, this intellectual property, you know, these, these very important issues. But, you know, for little things like, you know, maybe a, um, you know, dispute over, uh, you know, this, you know, you sell something, you sell something and the, the guy doesn't pay and he owes you 50 bucks. You know, that would be, those would be good kind of things like this. And then when there's every, when that cozy end point is, is uh, low because of the, you know, what, what, what's really at stake here. So that's my take on it. Well, if, um, if I can add a couple of things, uh, first of all, Truvoli did start off uh, on the basis of online commerce. So, Generally speaking, you're talking about small amounts of money. Um, the highest that we've been able to estimate as a part of the target market are online services like uh, Guru, Odesk, uh, Elance, where you have contractors that are at a distance. And you're talking about an average billing of about $4,500, which is why we set our limit at, at $9,000. Having said as much, um, Truvoli does not, Truvoli is extrajudicial. So it doesn't want to get involved with the law. It doesn't want to be in, it doesn't want the users, uh, whether they be the litigants or the, the users who are the jurors, to have to be preoccupied about one jurisdiction as opposed to another jurisdiction's law or the interpretation of the law. It's just good common sense. And what people consider to be reasonable. Um, I know right. from my own experience that, um, well, direct and indirect, that in many cases you can go to court and you actually end up with a ruling, um, in, in the cases that I'm familiar with, uh, a judge's ruling, that's really not reasonable at all. And to the point where, in some cases, um, even the facts have been distorted um, because they're, well, this is going to probably get a little bit off the point. But, you know, in the U.S. or in the Anglo-Saxon system, you know, we have a procedure that's called evidence. Uh, it doesn't exist elsewhere, <laughs> sorry to say. Mm -hmm. And... You know, when you have a judge who's deciding 
whether or not he's going to admit or not admit a piece of evidence, he's already tainted because he's looked at that evidence in making his decision. So even if the law says that such and such piece of evidence is not admissible, well, he's going to, because he's looked at it, he's going to be influenced by it. Right. So, so your, was, sy your system, if I can jump in, uh, posits that people can come in, tell their story. There are no sort of rules or parameters uh, on that. They're, they're evaluated for their own credibility. And what prevails is this sort of international consensus of right and wrong, of how the dispute should come out. Have I summed well, that what's up? Reason what's reasonable? Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. As far as the procedures are concerned, well, you know, we we included certain procedures that we thought were appropriate. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you can come, you know, you can file arguments, you can upload PDF files with um, evidence, with testimonies. Um, mm -hmm. But in the forum section, we did create a section in which people can talk about the different procedures and what they would like to see in terms of the future evolution. And to be perfectly honest, the only subject that we included or that I included was evidence. Because to me, that's very fundamental in the whole process. And, you know, America's exported everything, hasn't exported its legal system. But yet, everybody comes to do business in America because of the legal system. So, truly, in a way, just exports that process. <laughs> Exporting it back out. No. I like it. Well, I, I, I like any uh, sort of new approach or new way of thinking about making uh, disputes go away for people in a more efficient way and uh, appreciate your efforts and uh, we'll watch closely Denise, as, as you guys continue like to... to Sure. If I could just jump in as uh, well and say that uh, I, I'm an advocate, certainly, of any type of alternative uh, dispute resolution uh, under the right circumstances. And as a disclaimer of that, I guess I, I should say that I am um, an international arbitrator of sorts uh, as a domain name panelist for WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva, and uh, the Czech Arbitration Court in Prague, which are two of the um, uh, arbitration providers for what's called the UDRP, the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy, which has over the past uh, 11 years now become the primary and preferred method of resolving competing claims to domain names. Um, and in many cases, you know, the value of a domain name uh, it can be significantly higher not, not just what the registration fee is, um, but the value to uh, the party who's using it uh, can be significantly higher than this uh, $4,500 or $9,000 figure. Uh, domain names uh, themselves have sold for millions of dollars. Uh, and certainly the um, importance of a domain name to a website, you could imagine if Amazon, uh, for example, lost Amazon.com, um, that uh, the, the value of the domain names are, are so significant. And yet these competing claims to uh, domain names uh, are commonly resolved through uh, an ADR, an alternative dispute resolution uh, mechanism. And it is conducted, by the way, entirely 
these days uh, online um, through the filing of uh, papers, if you will, uh, or, or as Alessandra uh, was saying, PDFs um, submitted online along with uh, evidence. Um, and uh, while there's not a, a jury in the UDRP system as there is in the, the Truvali system that Alessandro uh, seems to be uh, setting up, um, there is still a uh, trier of uh, fact and uh, law or uh, policy, if you will, um, that is a panelist who is assigned to review the um, uh, complaint and the response and any other documents that may be submitted by the parties and issue a decision as to, to who gets the domain name. Uh, I don't mean to go on and on about it. It's, it's something I, I feel strongly about because it's a large part of my legal practice. Uh, but I, I, I mention it simply as an example of what I think is a very successful um, alternative dispute system that uh, did not exist uh, too many years ago um, and has become the prominent way, the dominant way of, of resolving one particular type of uh, dispute and it's conducted entirely uh, remotely um, just as the system that Alessandro was speaking of. So I, I think under the right circumstances, uh, a system like this, even if it's not this one in particular, uh, has an opportunity to fill a need. All right, so uh, Doug, I was going to ask you uh, to bring us up to speed about dot triple X. Ah, yes, the uh, long and interesting uh, history of dot uh, triple X uh, is going into the next stage, which uh, seems to be uh, live very soon, thanks to a vote by ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Uh, the board has approved uh, uh, the creation of the dot triple X uh, domain name, which will be used exclusively for uh, porn or adult uh, sites, um, and it is a, a fascinating history there, but I think really right now, uh, well, a couple things. One, to, to continue the segue from the topic about alternative dispute resolution, uh, it, it's interesting that one of the, I think, rather uncontested uh, uh, um, issues in the whole dot triple X uh, history is that disputes uh, or some of the disputes going forward will actually be resolved by this same UDRP process that, that I mentioned just a minute ago. Um, but uh, what's more interesting is how this process will actually play out now that registrations uh, will actually be functioning and domain names uh, at dot triple x will be live in the near future um, this is uh, something that will sort of be a, a bit of a precursor to a much larger expansion of the top level domain name system that uh, i can has been embarking on for some time the dot triple x is not uh, in the same basket, if you will, as uh, the um, expansion of the, the top-level domains that we're about to see, uh, but simply uh, the fact that we are going to see a new top-level domain added, uh, a new generic top-level domain name added, which we've not seen for uh, quite a few years now, um, will be very interesting to follow that. Um, it is what's been called a sponsored uh, top-level domain. That is, you must be um, in the uh, adult industry um, to uh, register a domain name in the .XXX, I believe. Um, but regardless, the trademark issues that have dominated the uh, entire domain name system 
um, will still be present. Now, it, it, from reading about what's been going on with .XXX through the years uh, and, and in recent weeks, it, you would think that nobody in the world uh, except the registry operator is in favor of a .XXX because there are those in the adult entertainment industry who have said, well, we don't need a new top-level domain to operate our adult websites. Thank you very much. We're already operating them under .com and, and the other uh, existing top-level domains. Um, and so now you're just forcing us to defensively uh, register our same brands in .XXX. Uh, that's sort of on the one hand. On, on the other hand, uh, there are those who um, uh, you know might be painted as um, anti-pornography. Uh, uh, who say that this is, you know, creating um, an opportunity for even more, uh, if that's possible, uh, pornography and adult content um, on the internet. So it will be interesting, very interesting to see how it plays out. There are apparently quite a few number of uh, what have been called uh, pre-registrations of triple uh, X domain names. Um, whether it proves ultimately to be a successful top-level domain or not uh, certainly re remains to be seen, but it's one of the more interesting ones that we've ever had. So in theory, folks who simply have a domain name that ends in X, uh, say ame.xxx, uh, would be prohibited from using this domain? Um, I'm, I'm, is that the American Medical Association or is that some other uh, entity? <laughs> I don't know what, uh, <laughs> what you're I was referring thinking to there. American Express, you know, if they decided to get oh, very oh, cutting sorry. edge, could call each other ame.xxx. Oh, uh, okay. I know. I, I do understand that. I think I missed another critical part of the question yet again, uh, thanks to our audio here. Um, I, I think what, what's also fascinating is that this in no way, there's a bit of a misperception um, that the creation of a .XXX domain means that all adult content on the internet will be moving to the .XXX domain. And that in no way is true. There will be no prohibition on adult content in .com or .net or .org um, or uh, any other top-level domains that uh, currently allow uh, this type of content, regardless of, of what you may think of it. So um, the only thing that we will know for sure, uh, to answer your question, is that the websites ending uh, in .XXX uh, are likely to have adult content on them, um, but it, the opposite is far from true. That is, uh, this is not the only place that you will find adult content online, for better or worse, whatever your perspective may be. So it's just more adult content. Evan, that can't be a bad thing, can it? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to answer that. Um, it, <laughs> the, uh, it, it seems to me, and, and I know that this is some of the, uh, one of the objections that the, that the adult industry, or at least members of the adult industry has had, is that it may make it easier for internet service providers to, um, and I'll put it in, you know, air quotes, censor, um, content, uh, making it easier, you know, to just establish bright line rules of content that they don't want running through the server because it originates at a dot triple X uh, domain. Um, so I'm wondering if anybody else on the call has any uh, similar concerns uh, like that, because that does seem really legitimate, given the protections that uh, internet service providers have under Section 230, with, this is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, you know, the, the broad 
latitude that service providers are given for their good faith efforts to screen content that they believe to be um, offensive. Another way of characterizing the issue is, you know, is it now just going to be easier for Internet service providers from a technological standpoint to screen content that it would not have been screening otherwise? And somehow we are not all better served uh, by that. Does anybody else have any thoughts along those lines? I, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, um, much of the adult content in the world, uh, if not on uh, the Internet, depending upon your jurisdiction, is legal. And so there is a uh, fine line, um, as uh, the Supreme Court said a number of years ago, it's, it's difficult to uh, define pornography um, or obscenity, rather, but I know it when I see it. Um, that's, uh, you know, a great quote. How useful it is, is obviously much more difficult to apply in practice. You know, there are those who, who might think that the uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue that, uh, you know, we can see in the grocery store checkout line um, is content that should, you know, appear only in a, a red light district, so to speak. Um, but Evan, to your point, it's actually a fascinating question. I'm not aware of any law, uh, at least in the United States well, or anywhere, um, that requires an ISP to make content available to its customers. And so it's interesting to perhaps uh, some ISPs um, might hold themselves out as, as a marketing benefit uh, that we block or we allow uh, content in, in .XXX. Uh, but I'm not aware of any law that uh, actually requires an ISP to do so. That, that doesn't mean that there's not. Um, well, it would, it would actually, it. I think the law would actually be the contrary to that because of what Section 230 says. It's two, Section 230C2, and I hate to get too wonky on any of these kinds of discussions like this, but it, 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 that's, the, that's the, the less treated part of, of Section 230 where it says that, you know, a, an Internet service provider can't be held liable for any of the good faith efforts it makes to screen content. So it, and as I read, you know, the law, it would be that, you know, an Internet service provider can do whatever it, it wants to do as long as it's in good faith, you know, to, to screen offensive content, you know, since 1996, not, you know, long before, you know, the question of the triple X um, domain. So, um, the, the point I see is that, you know, yes, indeed, you know, let's just say you're a, a, an Internet service provider in, in, I don't know, Utah or something. <laughs> you know, we, you know, make a, a hard and fast rule that no triple X, no content coming from dot triple X domain would, would make it through the system. So come pay a premium for our services because you're going to be getting less. <laughs> I guess that's how it would, would pan out. Right, in the market. right. right. Of, of course, what you may get then is only 99% of the porn online instead of 100%. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, it'll take a few two, years for folks points, to get you know. Two points occur to me. One is from Matt McCary in IRC who says, so all the adult providers just aren't going to use .XXX so they can avoid being filtered in this way. And I don't think it would have to be an all or nothing thing with the... Uh, ISPs. It could be an option. You know, you want to offer your services as broadly as possible. You want to capture families with kids who maybe want to have that option to check when they sign up for their service. Please filter triple X. Um, whether or not that's going to do a whole lot of good <laughs> is the next question. Yeah. Um, so, so, Alessandro, any thoughts on uh, the, the internet ghetto? <laughs> well, it seems to me like it might go the way of the dot tell. You know, a lot of noise and doesn't really get anywhere. 
Right. Well, it'll be interesting to watch that one unfold. It's certainly been a long time discussed and in the coming. Um, also discussed uh, for seven years now, the Google Book Search Project, the scanning and indexing of the world's information of library materials uh, hit its latest snag lately um, when a judge in New York has decided to not approve the settlement that was put forth in the Authors Guild case. Uh, Evan, you want to pack, unpack this one a little bit for us and tell us what we can expect next? We could expect um, a, a number, any of a number of, of different things. You know, Google and the Authors Guild could continue to fight it out and maybe we'll get a, 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 you know, a legal determination of this big question of fair use. Is it fair use for Google to uh, scan all these books and make the snippets available? Uh, you know, this is a copyright question. That's, that's probably not going to, to happen. Um, Judge Chin uh, who you know was the judge overseeing the Google Books search, book search case um, rejected the the settlement off or the settlement agreement that the parties had put together is enormously complicated opinion and um, uh, enormously complicated agreement in his opinion that he wrote rejecting it even though it purported to just uh, kind of treat the, the the terms of the agreement only briefly was still you know 48 pages long and so uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, in there. Uh, he hinted at one point that uh, the parties could, um, I think he used the word ameliorate the, the, the issues that he took, uh, uh, con has concern about, and I'll address those in just a moment. He says that they could, they could deal with those issues just by making uh, the participation in the class of uh, authors whose works are covered by the uh, settlement agreement opt in rather than opt out. Um, the main reason, uh, there were a couple of reasons why the settlement agreement was not approved, why he didn't approve the settlement agreement, but instead found that it was not fair, reasonable, and, and adequate, was this question of orphan works. And as we know, orphan works are those works protected by copyright where the author just can't be found, so they exist out there. What, what Google got from this proposed settlement agreement, had it been approved, was essentially a monopoly over those orphan works where uh, it had the right to go ahead and publish those, or scan them and publish those with impunity. And in, in, in if the author somehow uh, revealed himself or herself and, and said, hey, I'm the owner of this uh, copyright and this orphan work, Google would still have the right to do that, notwithstanding the, the author's objection. That was the big reason why Judge Chin found this, this settlement agreement not to be um, not to be fair, reasonable, or, or adequate. And so th there's where the opt-in part comes. If, it, if, the mem if your membership in the class depends on you doing something affirmative to actually become uh, the class, it, to put yourself within the class of authors whose works are, are covered by this, that makes it much more fair. And so it's probably what we'll see happen is more modification of the settlement agreement to kind of bring these sensibilities all under the tent of this litigation and this uh, this settlement agreement. So I think the smart money would be on just uh, you know going back and doing a little bit of redlining on that 166-page settlement agreement. That's a pretty big issue to redline, though, don't you think, Doug? Uh, I, I think it's. Um 
still a, a fascinating case. Uh, you know, from a pure copyright uh, perspective, you know, it's easy to say now with the benefit of seven years of uh, litigation and and document uh, documents behind us. Um, but you know, from a pure copyright perspective, it, it certainly seems that you know the c copying you know an entire uh, book uh, without permission of the copyright owner. Um, and using it in some way for commercial purposes uh, is, you know, if not the definition of, of copyright infringement, I, I'm not quite sure what is. Um, whether there is a defense of, of fair use, uh, as, as Evan points out, uh, given the nature of these as, as orphan works, uh, is an issue that is certainly of uh, concern, what, what to do about them. But ultimately, maybe an issue that's better addressed uh, by the Congress than, than by the courts. Not that I see that happening anytime soon. Uh, we've already got uh, patent reform um, going through the Congress. I, I don't know that uh, our lawmakers are interested in um, mulling over too much more intellectual property, if you will. But uh, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the settlement was rejected does not seem like uh, an outcome that would have been unpredictable uh, a, a number of years ago. And, you know, were it not Google uh, leading this effort, you know, probably uh, we wouldn't have even gotten to this point. Right. Well, I have our uh, tip of the week and resource of the week to get to in just a moment. But now I'd like to thank our other sponsor for episode 104 of This Week in Law, and that's Squarespace.com. Squarespace is the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog, and it has the greatest UI. It is so easy to use. You can create and manage your entire site uh, with this very intuitive drag-and-drop interface. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and they're beautiful. They hire really good designers to generate these. And once you find one that you like, you can take it and customize it to your heart's content. All in, it's This all-inclusive service includes several modules to build your website. There's a blog module that includes import and export support for WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. This means data portability, too. Once your data is in there, you can always take it out of... Squarespace and go somewhere else, but I'm not sure why you would because Squarespace offers so many great services and ironclad hosting that it is virtually impossible to bring down because they distribute it, distribute all of their hosting needs. Uh, if your site is getting slammed because someone has linked to you, uh, you don't have to worry about your site being reliable and available. There's a forum, a forum builder, there's Flickr photo display, there is a Twitter widget that lets you display tweets in your own website which is customizable so you can have it look just how you want it. There are Google, Google Maps and more. There are wonderful stats and search engine optimization features that are just built right in. There's permission access handling, the cloud architecture that I spoke about for speed and site stability, and an iPhone and iPad app that let you update your site on the go and monitor your comments and your stats and everything else you might need to do. Squarespace is for all of your website needs. You can build it, host it, and update it anytime. And you get a free 14-day trial when you go to squarespace.com. Sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and build your own wonderful Squarespace site. That's squarespace.com. Thank you so much for your support. 
So uh, before I get to our tip and resource, I wanted to show something that Evan had sent me a couple of weeks ago that is just so funny. We were talking on one of the shows about great mashups. And uh, this, I, Evan, give us the context on this. This is uh, a Lionel Richie mashup as a uh, I'm lost sign. And I think Burke can show it for us. Yeah, these are these are great. I love these little things. And I forget what we were talking about something a couple of weeks ago as an example of of remix culture. I mean, that's how I, you know, that that's the 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 notion that I thought of when I saw this. What it is, it's right. a it's a there it is. It's on the screen now, but for those just listening, it's a um it's in the genre of a um what do they call them? Um, handbills, you know that you you know a single piece of paper that you uh um staple to the the telephone pole uh saying you know this is you know i've lost my cat or whatever but it's a it's a picture of of lionel richie looking all suave circa 1982 wouldn't you say and yes. uh, at the top of the page is hello you know the question and then and underneath this picture is it me you're looking for you know of course invoking the lyrics from his uh number one hit um of that name, right? It's called Hello. And then right. down at the bottom is all the lyrics of the uh, the song in the little pull tabs. You know how you can just cut the paper a little bit as if, you know, like, you know, the, in the traditional format, you know, you take the phone number to call and it's all of these uh, little, uh, each line of the uh, the song, you know, I can see it in your eyes. I can... Why don't you sing it, Denise? Can you? Can you <laughs> I don't know that I can. I know that you've Hello. rapped before on the show, so I didn't know if you yeah, wanted. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can channel Lionel just now. I do remember what we were talking about, though. It was R2-D2 hawking pizzas oh, on that's a little right. sign. Yes, yeah. uh, in Brazil, I believe. And we also yeah. talked about And so recently. you brought this up today, of course, because of the uh, copyright infringement issues that it raised for uh, reproducing the lyrics without permission of the copyright owner, of course. Right, right, <laughs> right Absolutely, right. yes. And we also talked recently about Exit Through the Gift Shop, the uh, Oscar-nominated, and I, I don't know if it won, but um, excellent film uh, about street art and culture, um, which, you know, is very heavily reliant on uh, in a legal gray area as one of the yes. artists in the film. <laughs> um, yes. And, um, put it and, and, and uh, Sheen Family Circus is what I was, was thinking about. Yes. Also, remember the Charlie Sheen lyrics underneath the Family Circus um, right. cartoon panel. So, so, I mean, yeah, here we are getting all excited about this stuff. But what it does is... Um, it's a nice little exemplar of, you know, a, a mashup of a coming from a number of different places. And it's, it's, it's elegant in its simplicity, you know, the way that that's done here. And it would just um, really be a shame if, um, you know, the, the rights holders here, uh, which would be, you know, the record company, the at least three different rights holders implicated by this, you know, the record company, the, um, well, I guess it would be maybe not the record company because it's not a sound recording, but the, the publisher of the music and then Lionel Richie himself, you know, for his right of publicity uh, to the extent that that would be invoked. Don't pick at me. It's not a commercial purpose. But in any event, the, th the point I'm trying to make is it would be sad if expression like this were cut uh, out or somehow quieted because of those interests, because of the, the wonderful entertainment value it has. And it gives us something to, uh, to um, finish strong on the, on the show here today. Yes, exactly. And uh, as our resource of the week, I want to point us to something by Dan Rainey at his blog. It's in our discussion points at delicious.com slash 
week in law slash 104. He attended a session at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard on crowdsourced online dispute resolution. And uh, he did this in September 09 and live blogged or very shortly thereafter blogged his notes. So um, it's a great uh, follow on to our examination of Trubilee and some thoughts about uh, approaches to crowdsourcing and dispute resolution. So if you're more interested in those topics, go check out Mr. Rainey's entry. And uh, our tip of the week is uh, via Mashable, and they tell us with a bunch of statistics that piracy is now dead, or at any rate, on serious decline. And uh, this supposed this week, um, talking about the status of piracy, and uh, I guess we're back to COS costs again, right? Because the reason that piracy has died is because the alternatives to piracy have be become so successful. Um, so it's a great post about uh, the, the infiltration and uh, current state of piracy in the United States, and uh, I w wanted to toss it out to you guys before uh, we sign off today. Do you think that uh, the coast costs of of getting things legally have finally come down to the point where we can just say bye bye to piracy? What do you think, Doug? Well, I don't think we'll ever say bye-bye to piracy, uh, but it certainly is encouraging to know that uh, it's a lot easier today uh, and to obtain copyrighted content legally um, than it was just a, a number of years ago. And so I think that's good for everybody. It's good for the intellectual property owners. It's good for the intellectual property consumers. Um, and it's great to hear that it's actually having um, a bit of an impact, uh, whether the impact will be significant um, and how it will apply to other industries other than just the music industry uh, is something we should all uh, watch out for. Well, one thing I think is interesting is you could look at this in two ways, right? That either all of the crackdown efforts have so scared people that uh, piracy is such a, a now very dark net activity that uh, People are just paranoid and don't do it. They don't want to be on the wrong end of one of these huge suits by the movie or music industries. Or you could look at it as the alternatives have just become so good or, you know, probably the truth lies somewhere in between. But there was a great discussion on, uh, I'm not sure if it was this week's frame rate with Brian Brushwood and uh, Tom Merritt. Uh, of Brian talking about how he used to be an avid, you know, self-professed uh, game pirate, but because of how well Steam works, and you can just, you know, you've gotten to that point with video gaming, at least in the PC arena, that you can have all of your games at your fingertips anytime um, on any device. And that's really, you know, all anybody wants with content. I, I'm thinking that uh, with Steam, per Brian Brushwood on his show, Framerate, uh, piracy in the gaming world has just become irrelevant because nobody needs to do it anymore. Um, do you think that we will get to that point with books and movies and television and music? Wow, Burke, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hmm. I can hear you. Everybody just decided not to answer. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll jump in then with uh, something uh, 
to say. Please uh, do. To, this to, is, this to, is to, the greatest. This is my funnest here. end of a show ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, no, I, I, I still don't think piracy is going to go, go away. I don't, I don't care how easy it is to um, uh, legally uh, purchase a book or a TV show or a movie or music. Um, so long as there is a way to obtain it illegally, uh, that will still occur, just like there is uh, traditional shoplifting uh, these days. So I, I don't think it, it will ever go away. But again, I think it's highly encouraging uh, to know that you can hold a tablet device in your hand and without you know leaving your chair, you can purchase a book legally and have it in 60 seconds. Uh, I, I, I think that's great. Um, so this is an area where you know technology and the law will continue to uh, compete. Um, it will still be illegal uh, to to um, make copies of content that uh, you don't have uh, the right uh, to do so. Um, but it's great to know that it's a lot easier to obtain all of that content legally. Right, Evan, are you with us? And yes, do you have I'm, any I'm thoughts here. On the piracy issue. Yeah, I mean, there there has to be something up with these stats in the in the article. I mean, it, there's it, it, it's got to be something with the tracking, with more stuff that that can't be tracked. You know, with BitTorrent. You know, I mean, it's if you look at, you know, if you if you're reading about those the, all the BitTorrent lawsuits that are going on, both over porn here in the Northern District of Illinois and and in other places, and you know the U.S. Copyright Group litigation in Washington D.C. I mean, it's it's pretty a little bit more difficult. Uh, technologically to track, you know, BitTorrent users and all that uh, stuff. So, you know, there, there's got to be something with those stats. And then, you know, if that's not it, then it's just because the RIAA scared everybody off. You know, it isn't it kind of interesting to see, you know, they, they declared the end of their um, litigation war against individual P2P users in uh, October of 2008, and so it trickled off a little bit out of there after off of that. So you know, I guess you know now that that war declined, they realized there was no need to do it, and so people just stopped pirating music. I don't think that's the case. So um, I, I imagine there's there's a little bit of a statistical anomaly here uh, on on reporting um, that is aided <clears throat> to a lesser extent by the availability of legitimate free, or, I mean, sorry, legitimate content for purchase, licensed content for, for purpose. It's a combination of those two factors. Right, Alessandro, what do you think? Piracy, alive, uh, dead? As a business person, I think piracy is fundamental to the evolution of the business market. Uh, if there hadn't been the issue, all the issues around music piracy, there wouldn't be iTunes. We wouldn't be discussing uh, iTunes antitrust cases. Um, same thing for the movie industry or the book industry. There, it, it's more a uh, a reflection of products or services that people actually want and are willing to uh, consume in large quantities, and consequently make. A Make a, a make it an issue that will then actually make the the industry or certain industries move in a certain direction. So I have no problems with piracy, and I hope it still stays around for a long time. Wow, that's a good perspective. I don't think we've ever heard voiced on Twill quite that way. That piracy might be so valuable to the economic ecosystem that it should actually be fostered, perhaps, in some kind of policy way. It's good for the lawyers. Uh, Do you still mean it if it benefits lawyers? Because we get to sue people. That's, that's all right. True. You guys will sue people anyway. It's good for Alessandro, too, because people will 
go to Trubilee to resolve their issues. Oh, what was that, Napster that existed, that was started before? That, that changed the whole industry, no? It did. Continues right. to to this day. All right. So All right, folks. Seems like a good this thing, right? I think uh, that'll do her for this week. I really appreciate you all being here. And uh, Alessandro, it's been a real pleasure to learn more about your business and get your insights today. Uh, where can folks find you other than at Trueville.org? Uh, that's it. Just there That's for it? Now. Just there? Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, we're working on, on something else, but uh, it's going to come out later. Okay. Trueville's on Twitter, too, if you'd like to follow them there. They're uh, Trueville on Twitter. So um, it's been a real pleasure and great meeting you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much for having me. And Doug, wonderful to have you back. Thanks, Denise. Happy to be back. And uh, continue uh, growing your online media empire over there at gigalaw.com. <laughs> um, thank you for calling it an empire. Uh, I thank <laughs> again. <laughs> no, it is just wonderful. You have a real knack for um, pulling out what's important and vibrant in the uh, very already vibrant world of legal technology news and I really value your skills as a curator of the things that I read online and uh, as a commentator today on our show. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Evan, I always value your comments and skills. Thanks so well, much for being with us again today. Thank you very much. I value the opportunity to, uh, to be on the show. It's always a great time. You know, what a, what a great way to, uh, to, to stay on top of things, you know, preparing for these these conversations that we have, it's it's really fun. And um, and I and I said this last time Doug was on the the show, you know, gigalaw.com truly is a classic when it comes to the kind of thing that it is, you know, a place where uh, content is being uh, selected and, and presented on on a topic like this. He was during doing curation a whole decade before people even called it curation when it comes to picking out the the, the legal issues that that affect the uh, the internet and uh, vice versa so it's um, it's great to talk with you doug always uh, always um, always a pleasure good good time great, great. thanks Evan, and, I... and, and for your work as well thank right you on. and i think i have taglines for both of your businesses as the result of today's show uh webby and irc told alessandro that truvely could be called um the international online judge judy so there you go alessandro <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> we expect to see that up on the site shortly and uh for you doug you could just call gigala hey we're even older than the google books case <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So that's it, folks, for this week in law, episode 104. Join us again next week at live.twit.tv, 11 Pacific time, 1800 UTC. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.